questions. When attending distress, what is the process one should use when uh, trying to decide which intentions to uh, focus on first? Whichever ones come up first. <laughs> what if there's multiple? Multiple intentions? Well. Okay. Um, the advice here is to get the mind as solid as possible. I mean, the, the path itself causes a certain amount of stress. Working on virtue, working on concentration, working on discernment. These activities actually cause a certain amount of stress. But they're stress that's useful. In other words, it's part of your strategy. So if you have an intention to get the mind settled down, I'd say I'd go for that one first. Once the mind is settled down, then your next intention is to keep it there. Get really familiar with that territory. Okay, then when you've got it there long enough, then you can turn around and look, okay, what, what's the presence of an absence of stress here? And you see that your mind is really concentrated, there's nothing else coming in. Then you turn and look at this perception on which your concentration is based. Then you drop that. So there is a step, stepwise process here. That the things to do are the things that are listed in the path factors. The right view, right resolve, right you know, right speech on down to right concentration. So if you have the choice between dropping the path and dropping other things, let's say drop the other things first. Hold on to the path. And then as you know, once it's gotten you across the river, then you can let it go. But if it's in the middle of a river, you don't want to make a show to everybody, hey, I can let go of the path too. You fall in the river. Does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. Question over here. I have a question regarding the issue of the lack of stress or lack of uh, pressure. Um, in, in practical life, uh, I compare... I have a friend who, whose life's falling apart around him, and but he is such a person who is very happy. He is lack of stress, mm-hmm. lack lack of a feeling that, or, or he, he's. It seems like he lives in the moment. Mm-hmm. So even the life is falling apart. Everything's falling apart. He lives in the moment. He's happy, dandy as can be. And I come in and I say, Look, my God, everything's falling apart. You gotta pick up the pieces. And the way I make him pick up the pieces is that I create pressure or stress on him. So here's the deadline. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got to turn around by such and such date and create this sense of um, pressure or stress in him. And I, I, I have a hard time reconciling it because I'm a Buddhist and I know that, well, in a way it's good that he doesn't have stress, but he does that's, that's lack of stress less to, leads to inaction. Mm-hmm. And so in order to make him turn around, I make him feel uh, the stress. And eventually, okay. he turned okay. around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There's, I was getting to the point here just now. There's use, useful stress and useless stress. And the elements of the path. I mean, if, he's, if his life is falling apart and he's just kind of blissfully humming along... Um, that's not a that's not a time to live totally in the present. You know, he's got to look at what are the consequences of his actions. And if you realize, okay, by holding on to this, it's, things are okay in the present moment, but in the long term, there's going to be bad consequences. Okay, then 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 that requires. So is the 
the path or the, um, the pr- process of getting the person into right action by creating a feeling of stress, is that it's called urgency. wholesome or not wholesome? It's, it's called urgency. It's, whole, it's wholesome. It's skillful. There's a, in Pali, in, well in Thai, there's the word sangwega. In, in Pali, it's sangwega. And you have to develop that quality of a sense of urgency that you can't just let things ride because there are going to be consequences down the, down the road. And that's, that's a part of a wise approach. The Buddha is not teaching you to be just totally oblivious to the long-term consequences of your actions. Because he may be, he may be you know, feeling pretty blissful right now, but you say, hey, have you, wor- have you prepared for the fact that maybe someday there's going to be aging and there's going to be illness and there's death? Are you ready for that? Is your mind ready for those things? So are there a way to uh, get to the action without creating stress? Yeah. There's got to be some, but you have, the question is, the Buddha defines a fabricated reality into three types. There's stress and its cause, and there's a path to the ending of stress. All of those are going to involve stress of some kind. But there's the question, okay, which kind of stress just leads to more and more continual stress, and which kind of stress will lead to the end of stress? And it's useful. Thank you. Mm-hmm. This mic has to travel far. Get over here and then over there. Um, my question is about, uh, I guess I would call it infinitesimal stress. Um, to me, when I'm sitting, I find that when my mind is very quiet and it starts to drift even a very small amount, mm-hmm. I feel the, a pain. There is a, a pain there. And when my mind comes back, and everything drops off, there's absolutely no pain. Mm-hmm. So my question is, when there's actually no consciousness, even of the body or even of the mind at a certain point, what do I do next? Stay there. Pardon me? Stay there. And look to see, as your sensitivity gets stronger, to see if there's any, even the minus tiniest bit of stress at all. But sometimes it requires that you stay there for long periods of time or keep coming back to that spot. Because you can't see the stress in some of these states until you've been there a long time. It's like your eyes adjusting to a very bright room. You walk in and it's so bright you can't see anything. But then after you've been there for a while, your eyes adjust. You, You get more sensitive and then you'll see. At the beginning, when you were describing the, um, excuse me, the um, meditative states becoming more and more sensitive to the stress, it sounded to me like you were describing the four immaterial jhanas mm-hmm. and leaving that. So I'm wondering if you if you believe that one needs to go into those four immaterial jhanas before, you know, the final end of stress. Yeah. Is that what you were implying? You don't have to. The pattern he gives is just kind of letting out the whole road in the whole road map. In this particular sutta that I was following, there the Buddha was giving the whole road map. Mm-hmm. But there are other places where he says sometimes you can see this. You can get to the deathless leaving, say the first jhana or the second or the third. Okay. Thanks. Mm-hmm.
Okay, let's plow on. <laughs> I have ten pages of notes, and we've just finished the first two. <laughs> okay. Okay. Before we leave the, the Pali Canon teachings on emptiness, I'd like to look at some of the later critiques that the Mahayanas in particular directed towards the earlier teachings. One was that, particularly in the, in the question of the presence or presence or absence of a self, that, for lack of a better word, they call mainstream, which is kind of the early teachings, the mainstream Buddhist teachings, taught clearly that there is no self in you, but somehow got tied up in the idea that there was a self in this lectern, or this lectern had its own self, that there was sort of an inherent existence in the lectern, as opposed to there being no or there was an inherent existence in sort of the individual elements of your experience, but there was no you there experiencing them. Part of this critique is based on later Abhidhamma, and we'll be getting that to in a minute. But from the point of view of the way things functioned in the earlier teachings, a lot of that critique is irrelevant in this sense. The Mahayana take was that People are, are attached to things because they think there is an inherent existence in those things. If you, have the, if, you, if you believe that there was no inherent existence in this, then there would be no attachment to it. Psychologically, I personally don't see how that works. We're attached to things not because we think they have an inherent existence, but because we think they'll serve our purposes to create happiness. Now, whether you've got a, you've got a BMW, say, whether that BMW has an inherent existence or not is not the issue as far as you're concerned. It still functions. It gets you where you want to go. It impresses the neighbors. It does what you want it to do. And that's where attachment comes from. Thinking that it will fulfill your happiness. And even if it's not total fulfillment, you say it's good enough. It's worth the amount of time, whatever goes into earning the money to get the BMW, it's worth it. Now, it's that second dynamic that the Buddha is actually attacking in the, in the earlier teachings. So, from the point of view of the earlier teachings, that the criticism that the early teachings did not understand the lack of inherent existence in things, <clears throat> on the one hand, it's unfair, as I've already pointed out to you, the whole ex- question of the existence or non-existence of this lectern, the earlier teachings say, is irrelevant. It's just one of those questions you don't want to go there. So, they're not asserting that there's an inherent existence here. They're simply saying it's an irrelevant issue. And then secondly, there's the question of, is that really why people are attached to things? Do you think there's inherent existence? And from the, earlier, from the point of view of the earlier teachings, they say no. You're attached to things because you feel that the effort put into whatever that thing is, whether it's a material thing or a thought or a perception, is worth the effort. The payoff is worth the cost. So that's all I want to say this morning on emptiness in the Pali Canon. I'd like to move a little bit on to some of the later history of emptiness in the Buddhist tradition. And it's going to be kind of roundabout because a lot happened between the time of the Pali Canon and the next big emptiness issue, which was Nagarjuna. Outside of Buddhism, the big, the big 
development that had an impact on the teaching of emptiness was the, was the introduction of the concept of zero. Because the word for empty in Pali is sunya. Emptiness is sunyata. And the name of zero in Sanskrit and Pali was sunya as well. Now think for a minute, what would it be like if you were in a world where there had never been the idea of zero? And where do you think the idea of zero first came? And we tend to think it would come in mathematics, right? came in linguistics. And it came this way. There was a grammarian in the 4th century BC. His name was Panini. Or Panini, excuse me, Panini. And he was trying to develop a grammar for the Sanskrit language. And if any of you have ever studied any Indian language, as you realize there are basically two types of words. There are basically the root words, and then you have root words plus prefixes. Just as in English, you have form and reform. Um, or some other examples. I can't think right now. Um, at any rate. And everyone up to that point, up to before Panini, said, well, you've got two kinds of words. You've got root words, and then you've got the words that are built on the root words by adding prefixes. As in, you have in, in Pali, you have the word jnana, which means knowledge, and then you have vijnana, which means consciousness. It was added by putting the we on the front. Well, Panini, he had, a, he had a different kind of mind than anybody else. He said, actually, every word is a combination of a root and a prefix. And what about the words with no prefixes? They have the zero prefix. <laughs> <laughs> So that made it very consistent that you have no root words that any, any human being uses, just as a root. You've got the root plus the prefix. That's a word in his concept. He was an extremely logical sort of person. Well, what does this mean to have a zero prefix? It means you have nothing, but it functions. It, has, it performs a function. It does something. It takes a root and makes it into a word. And then the mathematicians began to realize that this is a useful concept in math. Because prior to this, can you imagine what doing high math was, was like before they had you know, things lined up in the, you know, the ones and the tens and the hundreds and the thousands? You had to memorize these huge sums in your head. It was all very complicated. But all of a sudden, someone came along and said, we can line these things up. You know, a ten is just a one with a zero behind it. The zero, zero doesn't mean anything, but it performs a function. It turns the one into a ten. You put two of them there, and they turn it into a hundred. You can add zeros, you can subtract zeros, you can multiply and divide zeros. And they do things. They perform useful functions, but there's nothing there. So think about that when we get to Nagarjuna. <laughs> you can have zeros, but they can do things, even though there's nothing. Nothing can do things. <laughs> and it doesn't mean what it, just, what it sounds like it says. <laughs> it's possible for a nothing to do something. <laughs> okay, that was the main development outside of Buddhism that was kind of an impact on the teachings on, on emptiness later on. Fourth century BC, India. And I can't tell you the date when it finally brought it, got it brought into math, but it was at least before the first century BC, the first century AD. Okay, inside of Buddhism, you have two strands of thought that are happening. One is something called Abhidharma. Um, 
And the other is called what we call the apadana, A-P-A-D-A-N-A. Or the Sanskrit term for that is A-V-A-D-A-N-A. And there's two very different kinds of thinking, two very different kinds of dialogue or literature. The apidharma is basically this. You've got a problem with the tradition of the Buddhas. In that what the Buddha left was his dialogues. What he told this person at that point, what he told that person at this point, kind of a big collection of stories about how the Buddha taught different individuals. And it was a huge compilation. I mean, you look at the texts and there's volumes and volumes and volumes of these dialogues. How are you going to pass that on to the next generation? Well, one way to try to do that is to try to streamline it. Get the basic concepts out and show that when the Buddha was talking about say, emptiness in this, con- in this context, was he talking about the same emptiness as he talked about in another context, or was it something else? When he was talking about feeling, when he was talking about perception, what are the different, how many different kinds of feelings are there? How many different kinds of perceptions are there? Let's make a table. That's the beginning of the Abhidharma. And what they did in doing this was, um, on the one hand, it was a useful pedagogical instrument that you can take a huge body of material and begin to boil it down into the basic concepts that you then pass on to the next people. But you've got this other problem, which is that when the Buddha taught, he taught in context. When he was teaching an elephant trainer, he would use a certain kind of vocabulary. He would use a certain kind of teaching, starting where that person's mind was and then trying to lead that person from that particular mindset to an awakened mindset. And given the fact that different people have different defilements, different people have different ways they can be reached, he used a lot of different teaching techniques. Now the question is, when you take the words out of the context and put them all on the table together, is that fair? Or have you destroyed something? And the Abhidhamma said, it doesn't matter. (laughs) We want a systematic table. So they went ahead with a systematic table. But I'm just leaving that question there in a minute. Because what happens is when you start getting the systematic tables out, you begin to realize that concepts, a set of concepts that worked in this context and a set of concepts that worked in this context, when you put them together, they, they don't quite fit. And, some of, and you get new issues that arise when you put these different concepts together that were never together before. One of the issues turned, turned on the issues of ontology. Okay, what things really exist in an ultimate sense and what things are only conventional? about the question that the Buddha talks about individuals. Well, do individuals really exist? Or is that just a convention? When the Buddha talks about specific people, do they really exist or is that just a conventional term for five khandhas? This is what they call an issue of ontology, the level of existence or the level of being you have there. Other issues came up with the question of logic. The Buddha said that his teachings had to be consistent. When you hear about a new teaching, he said you could, should con, con, Compare it to something that you've heard before. And if it's consistent, okay, then you can take that this is, this is the Dharma. Well, how do you decide what's consistent or not? Logic began as a systematic um, body of thought or a body of uh, teachings as a result of this. And when you talk about existence, then you have, well, they came up with this idea that everything is made out of dharmas, which are these sort of individual events that come and go. And those are the things that have ultimate existence, and they come and they go in the pattern of dependent co-arising. Well, the question is, how long do these dharmas exist? How long does this phenomenon exist? 
like a mountain. Does a mountain really exist as a long-term thing, or is it just a little made of these little atoms that come and go into being, or these little dharmas that come in and out of being very, very fast? Kind of like the frames in a movie. Or this hall. I mean, the, 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 does that wall over there, does it exist as long as the wall is standing, or is it made of these little tiny, tiny dharmas that come and go, come and go, come and go, come and go really fast? This is the sort of question the Buddha never asked or answered. But for some reason, the Apidamas got interested in this. And the question is, okay, if things... And some people say, well, they come into existence only momentarily. Well, then the question is, if they come into existence only momentarily, how can they perform all these functions in a moment and then pass on? Particularly the issue of karma. Suppose that a person is made of nothing but dharmas, but this person also has karma. What, what is there in this arising and passing away of these momentary existence, existences that would carry on the karma? What's the mechanism? And I'm, I'm going to flag all of these questions as, these are the questions the Buddha said not to ask. He said, if you ask about what's the, what's the mechanism of karma and try to work it all out, he says, you're going to go crazy. And the Arpadama said, no, we're going to figure this one out. <laughs> I don't have to put two and two together there, do I? <laughs> okay. So then you've got this question of if, if things exist. And you get these weird, weird theories. One of the theories was is that actually everything in the world exists in the past and the present and the future. There's nothing that goes out of existence. Things appear to come in and out of existence. That's simply because they're functioning at that point and they stop functioning, but then they continue to exist. And it's a substratum of existence that allows karma to be passed on. Now, what do we just say about substratum? The Buddha said, don't go there. But that was one of the issues that came up. Other people said precisely what I said. You can't have a substratum. You've just got these things that come in and out of existence really fast. In fact, they do it so fast that their arising and their passing away happens at the same time. And we're talking really fast. Of course, that, co- that brings up the other question, is okay, what passes on the causality from one thing to the next, if they don't have any of enough time to exist very long? Okay. The other issue was, what is the relationships between these things that come and go, in, come in and out of existence? Okay, this is an issue of causality. And I don't want to go into the get really involved, bogged down in the details, but I'll just give you a list of the different kinds of things they came up with to show how ingenious these people were. One was that, take the factors of dependent co-arising. What's the relationship between one factor and the next factor? Given that you've got these things that exist either permanently and function only momentarily, or things that come into existence momentarily and go out. Well, one is just that. It's what they call serial causality, in which the factors cause one another in very rapid rapid succession as they themselves pass away. This thing comes into being and it passes on a little causal thing to the next thing which comes into being and then and before it passes on it causes passes on the causality to the next thing. Really fast. One theory. Another theory is that all 12 factors in dependent co-arising all occur in the same moment. Everything from ignorance to suffering right there in that one moment and then goes out of existence. Another interpretation is the one that's called static, and this is the one that the Sarvastivadins, the ones who said that things never really go out of existence, says 
dependent co-arising does not depend, does not describe their existence. It just describes the functioning of things that exist permanently. They function for a moment and then they pass on the function to another thing, which picks up the function and carries it on to something else. And then finally, there's one that's called prolonged, in which the whole sequence takes over takes place over three lifetimes. You have ignorance in one lifetime, it leads to certain factors in the next lifetime, and then finally will produce suffering in the third lifetime. And because I've already said that all these are screwed up, we don't have to go into details. <laughs> but just gives you an idea of what was happening in among the intellectuals in the in the centuries after the after the canon was as the canon was being formulated. Okay, around the first century AD, Nagarjuna came on the scene. And Nagarjuna is one of those people who in later centuries is sort of like a sorcerer. He had all these legends built up around him. And his name was so popular and he became so important that there's just lots and lots and lots of writings attributed to Nagarjuna. And they've been able to do stylistic analysis. And if everything that was attributed to Nagarjuna was actually written by Nagarjuna, he had to live about a couple centuries. In fact, the the Mahayanas preserved a tradition that he did just that. Um, He was a sorcerer. (laughs) He was a doctor. And he knew how to create eternal life. And the story goes that the reason he finally died was that he had a supporter who was a king. And the king says, well, I'll I'll support you in your eternal life as long as you turn around and give me the medicine too. And so this king had showed no signs of aging, showed no signs of dying at all. And his son, the prince, was getting kind of anxious. (laughs) 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 And so he went to complain to Nargajana. He says, you know, I'm, I'm being cheated out of my right to the throne here. And Nargajana said, okay, and he took, a st- he took a blade of grass and he stuck it through his neck and killed himself. And, this, and then, when, of course, when Nagarjuna died, then the king no longer had the medicine, the king was going to die. But it so shocked the prince that the prince um, became a much better king than you would have expected. At any rate, you've got this whole problem. You've got all these writings attributed to Nagarjuna, and the, the, the problem is figuring out, okay, which ones are the actual ones and which ones are the later editions? And you look at this, what the scholarly literature has to say, and they say there's really only one that everybody agrees on. It's something that's called the Mula Madhyamaka Garnika, <coughs> which means literally the verses on the root of the middle way. Now, this, there, and, and these are the, this is the teaching where Nagarjuna sets forth many of his teachings on emptiness. And so, if you let's let's focus just on this one text. The problem, however, with focusing on this one text, it's called a Garnika. And a garnica is basically notes that a person writes to himself to remember the main points of his arguments. You have to realize that during this time, with all the apidamas and everything going along, these, these issues that I told you earlier of metaphysics, ontology, cosmology, and, and, and logic were, were creating a whole school of debates. The Buddhists debating among themselves, the Buddhists debating with people outside. And if you're a debater, you need debate notes. And in those days, they didn't carry notes around, so you had to memorize every, all the important points of your debate. That means that you, you sort of leave off all the extraneous stuff and you focus on the real issues, or the points that you want to make. 
And this list of issues is called a Garika. Now, what you often had was famous debaters would write down their Garikas and then they would provide a commentary for their students and the next generation. So they would know, okay, these are the main points that I used in my debates, and this is, let's, this is how I developed them in the debates. The problem is, Nagarjuna didn't leave a commentary. Nobody knows why. And so you've got a problem in trying to figure out these, um, these Garikas, is because sometimes in the Garikas, the Nagarjuna is speaking in the voice of his opponent. Okay, this is the kind of argument that you're going to get, and this is how I responded. Well, the problem is the Buddha Nagarjuna didn't say, this was the argument, this was my response. So you've got this whole collection of verses, and it's not always clear where he's speaking in his own voice, where he's speaking in somebody else's voice. So as you can see, it's going to be a mess trying to wade our way through something like this. The best way to deal with this is to focus on the issue. Since we're, we're, our concern is with emptiness, let's focus on where Nagarjuna defines emptiness and also talks about his approach in using emptiness and then piece together out of the Garikas a way of making sense out of them. Now, by Nagarjuna's time, as I said earlier, they had come up with the idea that the Buddha taught on two levels. There was the ultimate level and there was the conventional level. When he talked about individuals doing this and this type of individual or that type of individual, they had decided, or they come to the conclusion, one, by his time, they had concluded that there was no self. And we said earlier that the Buddha had said there is a self, right? Or excuse me, you don't answer the question. You don't say there is, you don't say that there isn't. Um, and people outside of Buddhism kept pressing the Buddha. They said, come on, give a straight answer. Come on, let's stop this. So finally they came up with a straight answer, which was that there is no self. Now, when you accept the idea that there is no self, then you've got a real problem when the Buddha is talking about people or individuals. So they came up with the idea that there are two levels of truth. There is the conventional level of truth and there is the ultimate level of truth. The conventional level of truth, the Buddha was just talking in terms that people would understand in terms of their daily language. But when he talked on the ultimate level of truth, there were no people there at all. There were just sort of conglomerations of form, feeling, perception fabrications and consciousness. Well, Nagarjuna accepts the idea that there are two levels of teaching, but he changes it around. He says there are two levels of teaching and there are two levels of emptiness. The conventional level of emptiness is dependent co-arising. And this is where he differs from the Abhidhammas who said dependent co-arising is the ultimate level of truth. Nagarjuna says, no, it's a conventional truth. How is it conventional? What's the question? What is the ultimate emptiness? Ultimate emptiness is, he says, total non-reliance on views. Gets the mind to a state where it doesn't have to rely on any view at all. Now you realize that dependent co-arising is, is in and of itself a type of view. It explains why it's a good idea not to have reliance on views. That's what its purpose is. The reason it's good, how it explains it, on one hand, when Nagarjuna talks about dependent co-arising, he gives a pretty standard um, account of what happens in co dependent co-arising. But he focuses on the issue of clinging. He says, okay, if there, if there were to be no clinging, then the person who was clinging would be released and there would be no further becoming. In other words, by letting go of your clinging, okay, that brings about 
total freedom. Okay, this, this much is pretty conventional. Where Nargajana gets interesting is where he says, the ultimate purpose of emptiness is to pry away all possible ways of clinging to any kind of view. And he does this by approaching clinging specifically as the issue of clinging to the idea that there is any existence or there is no existence out there. He says, all views are built on the fact, on the idea that things either exist or they don't exist. If you talk about the world existing or not existing, you can talk about people existing or not existing. But he says, if you can take apart the idea that existence and non-existence really apply to reality, that destroys the basis for all views. So what he's going to do is he's going to take everything apart by logic. We said earlier that the big issues for the Abhidharmas were ontology and logic. So first he's saying, okay, the basic concepts of ontology don't make any sense. Because what is ontology? Do things exist? Do they not exist? Do they both exist and not exist? Do they neither exist or not exist? And what Nagarjuna is going to say is you look at things in terms of dependent core rising, you cannot see any inherent existence in anything. And his, his reasoning is this. If things had an inherent existence, then that inherent existence would either mean that they existed inherently, which means they can't arise because they're already there, right? If they had an inherent non-existence, you couldn't make them arise. That would be going against their being. But you've got these things that come in and in out of existence depending on conditions. So you can't really apply the concept of existence to these things. You can't apply the concept of non-existence. It does not logically fit. He says you can't say that they both exist and non-exist because neither of the concepts really apply at all. So if you put them both together, then you've got a bigger problem. Where Nargajana gets funny is where he says, and you can't say that they neither exist nor non-exist. Now think about this for a minute. He said, okay, existence doesn't apply, non-existence doesn't apply. It would sound like the logical conclusion would be what well, they neither exist nor non-exist, right? He said, you can't say that. And the reason you can't say that, he says, is because neither concept makes any sense. And therefore, because neither concept makes any sense, you can't describe anything by describing them by nonsensical concepts. Now, on the one hand, that makes sense. On the other hand, it's, that's a sleight of hand. We'll get back to that later. <laughs> so what he's trying to do is use convention, the conventional concept of emptiness, which is dependent co-arising, the fact that things, are, things come and go based on conditions. And he focuses on making all views untenable from this one observation. And he goes through, and there's a whole series of things where he takes apart the concept of motion, where he takes apart the concept of things, of a thing that could come in existence and go out of existence. And he shows that it, if you look at it in terms of dependent core arising, it doesn't really make any sense. Then he also goes on to show that if you had the idea that things existed or didn't exist, the whole idea of causation wouldn't make any sense. For example, he says, suppose there's some sort of causal influence that this thing has over this thing. Okay. When this thing comes into being and it gives a causal influence to this, exactly, was, was it, did it contain something that was a causal influence that went from this thing over to this thing? If it was, then this would mean that this would mean that this one thing had a dual nature, the, the thing itself plus the causal influence. He said, that doesn't make any sense. He says, but if there was nothing that went across, then what would be the influence be? There wouldn't be any causal influence. That doesn't make any sense either. This is the kind of way Nagarjuna argues. 
he sets up these ideas around existence and non-existence, and then he says, if you really look at them carefully, they don't make any sense. And because they don't make any sense, he says, then that would induce you to drop any view based on nonsensical ideas. And from this, he says, you, you can take apart all views. And to begin with, he starts on some non-Buddhist, idea, uh, non-Buddhist views, and then he turns into some views that were formulated by the Apidamas about things coming into and out of existence, whether they existed before they, they function or they didn't exist before they function. He takes it apart and shows that you can't make any sense out of it. And basically, when you do that, then you come to, and then he takes apart his concepts of emptiness and non-emptiness. He says, you look at this too, and these, these concepts, they don't make any sense either, ultimately. The idea being, okay, you take apart this view, and then you take apart the tools that you use to take apart that view, and then you take apart those tools. Ultimately, it doesn't give you anything to hold on to. He says, once the mind doesn't have anything to hold on to, then it lets go, and it reaches the ultimate emptiness, which is the whole goal of the teaching, which is this non-reliance on views. I just realized I didn't explain that very clearly. Let's try it again. Okay. So you've got two types of emptiness. The emptiness of dependent core arising, which is kind of a conventional level of emptiness. And you've got the ultimate level, which is a mind that is totally free of views. Okay. He uses this conventional level of emptiness to take apart the ideas. What he says, all views are made up of ideas of things existing and then acting on other things that exist. Because that's all your views are made up of that. In fact, he goes so far as saying the reason you have lust is because you think that the object of your lust exists and, and you exist and your lust exists. And that's why lust has power over you. And I said, if you can take apart the idea and realize that the, that the object of your lust is empty, you are empty, your lust is empty, end of lust. Logically, it makes sense. Psychologically, I don't think it makes any sense at all. <laughs> <laughs> It's awfully naive. I mean, Nargarjuna takes the whole problem. He says, you know, the Buddha does talk about clinging as the, as the main cause of suffering. But he says there are actually four types of clinging. There's sensual clinging, there's clinging to views, clinging to your sense of yourself, and then there's um, clinging to what he calls rites and practices, clinging to certain ways of doing things. For Nargarjuna, there's only one kind of clinging, it's clinging to views. That clinging to views is based on a faulty logic. And if you can use your logic, if you can use other tools of logic to take that apart, he says, then you can end all clinging. And when there's no more clinging, then there's no more becoming, and then there's nirvana. Now, if you're coming at this from the point of view of a logician, it makes sense. The difficulties in Nargarjuna is that he will use any, any logical tool he can at all to take these things apart. I mean, if you're trying to see, does Nargarjuna have a consistent approach in his logic? No. He'll take a- anything to take apart a view. And if you, if you have any particular view that's based on any kind of existence, and you can attack it from any angle, he'll take that angle. And then the next view comes up, and maybe he has to attack it from this angle. But the whole purpose of this, he says, is a good purpose, because the reason we suffer is because of this clinging. And you've got to do anything you can to take apart the clinging. So he says he, he doesn't need to be. He doesn't feel that he needs to be consistent all the way through. You can take it any kind of any kind of approach that works. You take it. 
just to destroy that person's attachment to that particular view. Ultimately, though, he says you have to even you have to even destroy your attachment to emptiness as a view. Which is why, after he's taken every other kind of view apart, then he turns around and he turns on his own tools to show that the concept of emptiness itself. He said, if things were not empty, how could you see that they arise and pass away? If things were empty, how could they arise and pass away? And what that's supposed to do is supposed to do this this kind of logical twist that makes you drop all views the other way. That's how Nagarjuna works. And so one of the difficulties in reading the text is trying to describe when he's describing the process from outside, trying to explain why he's taking this approach, and he does that in some of his verses. And then there are other verses where he's actually doing the approach, he's showing you how it happens. And so he'll pick up one view and take it apart, and then he's got from another one angle, and pick up another view, take it apart from another angle in the next the next verse. And many times he's contradicting himself from verse to verse. But as far as he's concerned, that doesn't matter because his purpose is to take apart all views. He says, if you believe in emptiness, everything is proper. <laughs> but the person who uses emptiness, everything is proper. So you can see why he has this reputation of being a trickster. Um, the question is, you know, is, it a, is it really, does it really have the effect that he intended? Because as we said earlier, whether you would describe this as existing or non-existing, you can still be clinging to it, even if you wouldn't describe it in, as existing or non-existing. The question is, does this perform the function I want it to right now? And then you can cling based on that. Does it make me happy? Is it worth it? And Nagarjuna doesn't touch that issue. So in, in some ways, he's following the same pattern as the earlier teaching, saying, well, clinging is the cause of suffering. We've got to get rid of the clinging. And you look at the, this particular text that we're working on, Margarita is known for being a Mahayanist. He doesn't give any Mahayana views at all. I mean, the basic Mahayana teaching is the Bodhisattva path. He doesn't mention the Bodhisattva path. And as we, as we get into this afternoon, we'll be talking about what the Bodhisattva path was described in those days. Nagarjuna doesn't use any of those descriptions at all. Straightforward Hinayana goal. Get to Nirvana by letting go of clinging. He has a slightly different way of doing it from the early texts, which is seeing clinging as a logical problem and then using logic to attack that from all angles. And then finally he attacks his logical tools so that you can have no more basis for clinging and then you drop it all. He's fascinating, but you always have the feeling he's tricking you. <laughs> My feeling for Nagarjuna is that he was kind of like a, a college sophomore who learns logic and begins to realize, hey, you can use it this way and you can use it that way and you can use it this way too. Or like, I have to, I have to make a confession. I've been reading Ursula Le Guin recently. <laughs> you know, the Earthsea, Earthsea trilogy. And Ged, the hero in the very beginning, he learns magic tricks. And he has no idea that there are going to be consequences for his tricks. And so he does all kinds of things. And he ends up really hurting himself. My sense of Nagarjuna is that he's focusing on the one issue. He had that's really great insight. Where can, you can take things apart from any angle. And we're trying to get rid of clinging. Let's use logic as a way of getting rid of clinging. Because he does point out rightly that the Abhidhammas are creating a bigger and bigger and bigger edifice of, of views to hold on to. And they're asking a lot of questions that the Buddha said, don't ask. They're trying to answer them. What Nagarjuna is saying is, simply in and of itself, learning not to answer those unanswerable questions, 
that in and of itself is going to be freedom. Which is very different from what the Buddha said. The Buddha said is you've got to drop those other questions so you can focus on the issue of suffering. For Nagarjuna, it's just okay, simply dropping all those other views, dropping all those other questions, that in and of itself is going to get you to the point where you're ready to let go. So it's, there's, there's a slight twist on the teaching there. Any questions? Yes. I'm sensing an irony here that um, the the Buddha said, "Don't ask these questions," and and gave um, gave answers to whatever questions people asked based on where they were coming from, and used all kinds of different methods and all yeah. kinds of different yeah. language and sought yeah. on all levels. And then the Abhidharmists, Abhidhammaists, yeah. came along and tried to. Uh, systematize it, mm-hmm. and then Nagarjuna is basically trying to apply the Buddha's techniques of coming at it from all different angles mm-hmm. to undo what the Abhidhamma people had, had done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and yet you're saying that the end result is not, I mean, it it, is not what the Buddha. It's a slight twist. Let's put it this way. It's not. It, some people see Nagarjuna as being a radical departure from the Buddha. Other people seeing some that he's simply fulfilling what the Buddha sort of said in, mm-hmm. in, in vague terms, but he's making it more precise. The difference here, what, what's similar here, is that um, Nagarjuna has a really good nose for all the questions that the Buddha said, don't ask. And he's pointing out the fact that the Abhidhammas were starting to create systems around those questions. Um, for Nagarjuna, however, the, it's, 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 it's a logical problem. The Buddha was very logical. He was very logical, but he, for Nagarjuna, it's purely a logical problem. For, for the Buddha, there are lots of problems. Partly, it's, sometimes it's logic, sometimes it's your intention, sometimes it's your motive. Nagarjuna focuses the whole discussion in terms of logic. That's, that's, the, that's the big difference between the two. And the Buddha always focused on what brings the end of suffering, and right. so is, is part of what you're saying is that Nagarjuna kind of lost. He track focused. Of that he focused on one on one one aspect of that. On, on on the logical issue, whereas the Buddha said, you know, there's in terms of your motivation. Sometimes you have to work on the po- person's motivation. Sometimes you have to work on their sensitivity to what they're doing, how they view things. And also, when you put the Buddha's teachings together, there is kind of a coherence to them. The problem with Nagarjuna is, as, as I said earlier, he didn't write the commentary to his verses. And so what on the surface may seem, you know, there's lots of contradictions. And it, you'd really want to know how is he going to work out the contradictions himself. Because he actually ends up saying opposite things from one verse to the next. The Buddha never says opposite things. There's just, you know, sometimes a little bit of psychological context that changes from one dialogue to the next. But in terms of logical, logical dissonance, you don't have that. And so what happens was the reason Nagarjuna was not very effective in stopping the Abhidharmas, the Abhidharmas went on for another several centuries. On the one hand, they felt he was playing fast and loose with logic because his logical approaches were, came from different assumptions. And, as, and the whole purpose you seem to get in Nagarjuna is just trying to stop these people. But he wasn't able to stop them. Secondly, the fact that he has all these different arguments and all these different statements sort of there in, in a pile in, in, in his Garnicas. People came along from later generations and kind of picked and chose what they liked. 
took, take things out of context. Right, which kind of, it just mirrors his method, so he kind of... Yeah. Well, the problem is sometimes they would take just one hunk to create another view. Can uh, I ask you just to repeat the four forms of clinging? One was clinging to views. The Buddhist teachings of clinging to views, clinging to sensuality. The third one is clinging to doctrines of the self. And the fourth is clinging to rites and practices, sort of ritual ways of doing things. So there was a question. We got it. I wonder, does it help to think of time as a continuous or continuum where past, present, and future all exist simultaneously? That is, where all events that ever happened and all that ever will happen are somehow all in existence right now. So there's no separate past, present, and future. And because everything that ever happened did lead up to where we are now and everything we do um, what we do now you know is, is going to bring the future into effect so in a way it's all real now and and that helps to explain karma and maybe it also explains how these little events are particles of existence that go in, get in, go in and out of existence instantaneously somehow they don't exist but they're still they do have a uh, con- you know a forever existence that was one of those questions the Buddha said don't answer <laughs> <laughs> the question is the, the connection he wants you to see is be- between stress and what you did what, what you did and what you're doing and he says, when you work through that issue, then you've basically solved all the problems that really need solving. So he, he, would, he would say, basically, it's, it's one of those questions you just back off of. <laughs> and he's trying to get you more and more focused on, okay, where is there the stress right now, and what did I do, and what am I doing to maintain that? That's, that's the issue. The, the reason I brought that up is, is it, it, thinking like that helps me to think, realize that all the thoughts I have, all my impulses, and the ways that I act upon them, um, you know, they have immediate and also long-term consequences mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on myself and everyone around me. Mm-hmm. Okay, if, if you find it helpful, but then the question is you want to be focusing specifically on which thoughts are skillful and which ones are not. That's where you want to go from there. Okay. 